0: Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, be sure to visit us at cbctaylorville.com. Listen now as Pastor Chad delivers this week's message. So good to see you, whether you're here in person or you're joining us somewhere else, wherever you are, sitting at home in your pajamas, driving down the road, wherever it is. And a special shout-out to my daughter, who may be driving through Tennessee right now. There you go, sis. Pay attention to the wheel. Keep going forward, but you can listen. Dad loves you. So, hey, uh, it is awesome to be here, and we're starting a brand-new series. We'll be spending some weeks in this series all the way up until Easter, and what we're going to be doing is we're going to go through some selected events that happened in the last week of Jesus' life on earth before the cross, So we're going to see certain ways and certain people uh, that Jesus encountered along the way and some some ways that Jesus impacted their life. And my hope and my desire and really my prayer for you is that your life would be impacted in a similar way by the word of God and hearing the testimony of of what is happening in these passages. And we're going to get there in just a little bit. But first, I want to just read to you a a message from Tim Clow. Tim is... Not here this morning, but he is at home recovering. Um, he's normally sitting right back there blocking, uh, there you go, right next to Pam, blocking Troy's view. And, but he's not. And uh, if you were here last week or if you're tuning in last week, you know we just had this sweet time of our prayer over Tim. And it was, it was overwhelming for me. And Tim's surgery went exceedingly well. And your prayers were heard, God honored them, and he's, he's recovering and he's doing well. And this is what he says to you. He says, Good morning, Calvary. I want to thank all of you for your prayers, support, and love. Also for the text, phone calls, and cards. Sunday, when I turned and saw all of you standing behind me praying, I was overwhelmed with emotion. My tears for the love I felt and that you showed me. I've been praying for God to send me something that would give me peace and comfort for Monday. He answered my prayers with the church full of prayer warriors. The image of all of you standing there was what I focused on Monday as they wheeled me into the operating room. All went better than I could have expected. I'm so blessed to have a, a fam- to have this family of God praying for me. I definitely felt it, and I thank you from my heart. May God bless each and every one of you. Love, Tim. That was right from Tim. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing to be able to come into this place and knowing that you can get prayer and encouragement from one another? And this is one of the great elements of being a part of the family of God is, is the support for one another, that we don't have to just go through life alone, amen, and for which I'm, I'm really, really thankful. I want us to start this morning, and I'm just going to tell you a story illustration, and I think it's, in some ways, it's where we find ourselves, whether it's today, whether it was yesterday or weeks ago, or we'll be in again because of the, the challenges of life. And the story goes like this, a man fell into a pit and he couldn't get out by himself, An optimist said, well, things could be worse. A pessimist said, things are going to get worse. A fundamentalist said, well, you deserve your pit. An Arminian said, well, you should have used your free will to get out of that pit. A Calvinist said, well, you are predestined to be in that pit. A sociologist says, well, we need to do a study of men in pits. A Pharisee walked by and he says, well, only bad people fall into a pit. A psychologist said, well, you only think that you're in a pit. There you go. A politician said, do you think that lets you vote while you're in the pit? And finally, a Baptist Sunday school teacher says, oh, honey, I'll bring you a plate of food since you're in the pit. (laughs) How true is that? All these stories are great, right? All of those, they're like some true to life in some way, and they're kind of comical. And yet what happened next is where we find ourselves: Jesus, seeing the man... Feeling for the man, knowing that he was in a pit of which he couldn't get out himself, he lifted the man out of the pit. I just want you to know, if you're in a pit of your own doing, if you're in a pit of somebody else's doing, if you're in a pit of unbelief, if you're in a pit of pain, if you're in a pit of stubbornness, if you're in a pit of pride, if you're in a pit of hurt, if you're in in a pit of trauma, Jesus meets you where you are, and by his grace, he wants to pull you out of that pit. But he does so in such a way, by his grace, understands that you can't get out of that pit on your own. So he allows a way to get out of the pit. There's an interesting passage that we're going to look at today in Luke 19. And we're going to see there wasn't a man in a pit, but instead we're going to see a city that was... It was in great need of him. Luke 19, verse 41 through 44 is going to be the main passage this morning. We're going to find some other supporting passages along the way. But what we're going to see is Jesus' response to people's pain. And, And I wanted us to start out this series with this particular passage because I think this is ultimately where we are right now. Even following up in what we've been talking about the last three weeks and, the, and just the, the idea and the reality of bearing the hatchet and what forgiveness and reconciliation really looks like for gospel people, there's still some work to do. There's still some hurts, but I want you to know, and what we're going to see in this passage, how Jesus is moved towards other people's pain. He's moved. The events that, that we're going to look at, starting in verse 41, I'll just tease it up in this way. This is Directly after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, or getting near the city of Jerusalem. The events of Palm Sunday, of which gets talked about every couple years, it gets preached on every couple years, of then Jesus, the Sunday before Good Friday and before Easter Sunday, within the beginning of that week, he enters into the city of Jerusalem and there's like this celebration because the city is just swole with people. And it's Passover week, so people would just come in droves. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people would just descend upon Jerusalem at this special time. And now there's all this this hubbub going around and Jesus' miracles and they're celebrating him. And yet everybody seems to be caught up in this moment, or at least a lot of people get caught up in this moment, except some dissenters in the crowd. And the dissenters in the crowd just always happens to be the Pharisees, Sadducees, or teachers of the law. The people were overjoyed in verse 38, and they said, Blessed is the king who comes into the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. However, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, silence the crowd that that is cheering your name right now. Jesus says this epic thing in verse 40. He says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. In other words, there is nothing that you can do to hush the praise that is due the name of Jesus. There's nothing that, that's going to work to silence the crowd. And if for some reason, even politically or socially or, or even militarily, you were to silence this crowd, even the rocks would cry out praise to Jesus because of, he is worthy of all praise. Amen? And yet, what happens next is somewhat shocking and yet somewhat just a normal day in Jesus' life. Still, while Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, it says this in verse 41, our main passage. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground you and the children within the walls. They will leave one they will not leave one stone on another because you do not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So imagine if you will, Jesus then he's just he's gone and he's heard these praises because of who he is and people honoring him and worshiping him and praising him. And then he's just, he's just on his way still to the city of Jerusalem. And he's just so stricken with the view of the city because he is thinking about what's going to happen 40 years later when the city of Jerusalem is is encircled and the people are hemmed in. And the walls come crashing down and they are crushed in about A.D. seventy. So when Jesus looks upon this city, and it says in the passage in verse 41, he approached the city, and he saw it, and he wept over it. This is why he's weeping. This is why he's weeping, because he's not just looking in this moment, and in this moment, he's not thinking of himself. I don't believe at all that he's thinking of just a couple days from now, he's going to be nailed onto, onto a cross, and he's going to be publicly humiliated, and his own mother is going to watch him die. I don't believe any of that's going on in his mind. Instead, and just based upon this passage alone, of which is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, by the way, now this particular vantage point, what we see is Jesus is moved, and he's weeping over the city because he knows that the people had a choice to believe, and yet they chose not to. He knows that, sure, there were disciples and people following him, but there seemed like more people were following him, and yet there were just waves of people departing from him because when he would talk about following him, or they were so, maybe so curious about his miracles, and yet they didn't want to follow him because they didn't want, ultimately, to have their, have their lives changed by him. Know this to be true, folks. Old unbelief can stand against new belief. Old unbelief can stand against new belief. They believed and they knew that he was a great teacher. They believed that he was even potentially a prophet. But because of their strict teaching and belief, that being of the Pharisees in this passage, they they just could not get past their, their old belief Because they looked at the Old Testament and it was so narrow that they did not believe that Jesus could be the Messiah. Oh church, the same thing happens to us today. So many times we have old unbelief that just lingers, 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 lingers in our heart and we never ask God for much and we never do much for God because we have old unbelief holding us back. In some ways, maybe it's a silly example, but I was a kid who used to, Enjoy going to the carnival. Remember when you used to be able to go to the carnival for less than $100? Anybody remember that? <laughs> Anybody else don't go to carnivals anymore because it costs, like, you know, a family vacation to go to the carnival? When I was a, a kid, we would go to the carnival. I didn't even really go to the fair, but I would go to, like, small-town carnivals and win and, and Nocomas because that's where I lived. And that's where we would go to Labor Day and stuff. And, and I remember uh, I was a pitcher in Red Bland Little League, by the way, just so you know. I've told you about my accolades in C-League. We won the championship. I'm just saying, no big deal. (laughs) I got the trophy at home. I might polish it later. But that being said. But I used to love the the game where you'd throw the beanbags and you'd have the little bottles on the little little round pedestal thing. And I knew that it was a trap. I knew that it was a trap. But I thought, oh, how hard could this be? I mean, you're throwing the beanbags and they're like weighty enough. And you throw them at the bottles, not knowing that they're probably filled with lead. But that—that's neither no, here nor there. And they have the bottles stacked up, and you have to—and the deal is, you have to out of the bean bags, you have to throw the bean bag, hit the bottle, and the bottles have to be completely off of the little round pedestal. And again, I know it's a trick, I know it's a trap, I know it's a waste of money, but I was doggone good at it. At least I thought I was. There was one particular year that I actually won that I got all of them off there. And as soon as you win once, you think you to win every time, right? You, you, you stop thinking how rigged it is. You stop thinking about, you start thinking more of yourself. And and then every year after that, it, I would just fail and I would like knock them over. But there always be that one or two just kind of like just rolling back and forth, laughing at me just, you know, as, as I'm just wasting my money trying to knock the thing down. Many times when we try to have... New belief go into our life, and yet what we have is we have unbelief that is stubbornly resisting that belief that comes in. So while we have this new belief to to maybe believe, to pray differently, to live, live, live differently or believe differently, sometimes we have stubborn unbelief even based upon the Bible like the Pharisees because their theology was spot on. Their living out of their theology was horribly wrong. Their theology at the time was dialed in. They knew the law. They just didn't know how to live out the law. We in the same way can be stubborn when we have maybe new beliefs and we don't actually become the people that God wants us to become because we have these these little bottles that are still lingering on the pedestal and yet we have not allowed Jesus or asked Jesus or the simple gospel message to take away that unbelief so we can actually put together new belief. New belief in him. Again, they believed that he was a great teacher. They believed that there there was a lot of amazing things that he did. But they simply didn't go all in to believe that he was the Messiah of which he was, of which he is. It was the same Bible. If I were to, to go into Isaiah 9, there's so many other passages, but this one in my study stood out to me. So I'll just share this with you. So many, there were so many passages in the Old Testament that they knew that should have been a clue for them to point to Jesus, like this one in Isaiah nine six. Usually, gets read right around Christmas time. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given; that the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. There were many passages in the Old Testament that were pointing to Jesus, and yet, because they had old unbelief, they were not allowing themselves to believe, and perhaps God would not allow them to believe that God is, or that Jesus is who he says. That he is. Go back once again to verse forty-one of our main passage. Notice again how, as as Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over the city. We're going to take from this a very simple truth, but yet it cuts to the core of all of us. Jesus responds to pain. Jesus responds to pain. From the descent of the Mount of Eagles, the the Mount of Eagles, the Mount of Olives, excuse me. Uh, I'm also thinking of another Isaiah passage at the same time. And I'm not much of a multitasker, so this may sound like me speaking in tongues, of which I don't do, but it may sound like it. I don't know. We'll see. Correct me theologically later if I get it wrong. But as you, I've actually gone to Jerusalem and I've been on the Mount of Olives and when you're on the Mount of Olives and you're descending the Mount of Olives, you have this spectacular view of the city, the old city particularly of Jerusalem. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's so rugged still, and it's breathtaking. To see it and, and to reflect upon what happened on that sacred piece of ground. And yet Jesus is now taking his own descent and he's looking at the city and he's responding to the pain that will ensue within that city. The word wept is the strongest word that could be used for the word weeping. So this isn't just like One little TV tear from an actress that's faking emotion. You have the little lonely tear that goes through and they pan in and it's like, oh, it's so real. Jesus is so stricken emotionally that he is weeping, probably uncontrollably. Again, not because of himself, but because of someone else. Finding his newly appointing pastor standing at his study window, a layman came into, into his pastor's office and, he, and he, sees the, he sees the pastor looking out the window of his office and his study and, and the layman comes in and he sees, sees his pastor looking at the city and he notices that, that his pastor is, is crying. He's just breaking down. The layman says, well, don't worry. After you've been here a while, you'll get used to it. And the pastor says, yes, I know. That's why I'm crying. Let us never get used to the pain in our city. Let us never get used to the pain in our own lives. Let us never get comfortable with the pain that is, that is all around us culturally right now. Let us respond... In, In a way that would honor Jesus. Because Jesus wasn't weeping for himself. He was weeping for the city. There's another passage of scripture in Matthew 9. That tells us also about how Jesus responds to pain. In Matthew 9, verse 35, it says this, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus. Uh, the the very nature of him and being compassionate, the way he was responding is for him to send out the apostles to go out and share the good news and he himself was healing and he actually gifted some of his apostles with the ability to heal, to bring about the kingdom of God. The same reason why, why the Holy Spirit sends out preachers and missionaries all over the world today. Because Jesus sees the pain, not just physical pain, but also spiritual pain. And he sees the lostness. He sees people just the same way that he did on this day. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus still responds to people's pain today. And he still responds by sending missionaries and sending pastors for them to answer the call, a special, a call, an anointing on their life, to bring the good news into dark places. I was praying this morning, and I was just praying and I just asking God, would you send out somebody from our church? Would you send out a young man or woman in this church? Would you send out a man or woman in this church? Would you seal it with an authentic call? Would you burden them for a group of people that the only way that they can respond to that burden God that you've put in them is for them to go out and to tell someone about the good news of Jesus. To be the hands and feet of Jesus and to respond to people's pain. Maybe you're that one. You see, Jesus, he, he acted in a way that was sinless and he per- He protected the truth, and He healed so many people. But the people still rejected Him and His message. The reason why within our vision is we want to be a church for God, for the city, for the nations. The reason why this is our vision is because the Word of God is still true. Because people need the gospel message in our city. People need compassionate love in our city. They need mercy ministry within our city and within our county and within our area of the country and around the world. That the Great Commission is not something that is just something from our distant past. It is still something that is current and relevant today. Jesus, when he's seeing the city and he's weeping over it, John MacArthur says it in this way. He says Jesus is agonizing over their superficiality, their hypocrisy, their rejection of him, and their shallowness. Another commentarian wrote it in this way, William Barclay. He says the tears of Jesus are the tears of God when he sees the needless pain and suffering of which men and women involve themselves through foolish rebelling against his will. So painfully true. If you don't know Jesus, may I I invite you into a relationship with him. And may you take heed to the word of God that you would see in Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. And this is what it says. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so that he may have compassion on him and to our God that he may freely forgive. If you're not someone who you, you would say that you are a Christian at all, may you respond to the invitation of Jesus this morning. May you seek him while he's found. You draw near to him while he's being drawn into you. That you abandon your old way, your old sinful thoughts, and return to the Lord so that you would receive His compassion and His forgiveness. May you take heed of the the message also in Matthew 3, 1 and 2, in the days of John the Baptist. John the Baptist came preaching in the desert In Judea saying, repent for the kingdom of God is near. May you repent of your sins in your old ways. You seek the Lord while he's found. And the stillness of this moment when Jesus has your attention. Respond in this moment. Don't put off until another day to respond to Jesus today. A little bit later in in the ministry of Both Jesus and John, Mark 1, 14 and 15 says this After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. There's some good news there, but there's some other news that needs to be given to you. God's mercy gives limited opportunities to repent and believe. I'll say it again. God's mercy gives limited opportunities to repent and believe. There may be a day where God's voice, the Holy Spirit, stops drawing you in the way that it is right now. And you may get comfortable with hearing the silence. And that is one of the most dangerous places that you can be either as an unbeliever or as a believer. Because after you've shunned the voice of God so long, God allows you to not hear his voice any longer until you repent. And in those dark days, it's as if you were never saved to begin with. Though you are saved because once a person is saved, he's saved forever. His actions do not save him. Jesus saves them. But we can live as ones who are unsaved. We can live as one who's backslidden. We can, live, we can live our life on our own terms. Because God gives us a will. And our choice as Christians and also as non-Christians for us to be right with God is to submit our will to the will of God. Romans 2.4 says this, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that His kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? It's the very kindness of God that gets your attention in special moments like this. It's the kindness of God that's the whisper of the Holy Spirit in these moments that gets your attention to remind you that you are not in Christ at all. Or that if you're saved, it is the kindness of God that reminds you to repent and get back into God's will. There's a passage of scripture that tells a story about the Jewish people, the same Jewish people that Jesus would have been surrounded with, the same Jewish people that Jesus confronted on a regular basis because of their unbelief. Acts thirteen forty four through 48. It reads in this way. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. In other words, to the Jews first. And notice what it says next. He says, Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. That was a pivotal time in in the book of Acts where the mission of God was not solely upon the Jews, but there were these chapters in Acts where you see there's a transition. There was still the message bringing to the Jews, but yet there was also a big wave of attention being drawn to the Gentiles. And it was in this moment, that this big aha moment, that the passage says, That since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. Verse 47 says this, For this is what the Lord commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, so that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and and they honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. In other words, after the message of the gospel stopped primarily being to the Jews and it shifted then to the Gentiles. The Gentiles believed. People repented of their sins. They responded to the gospel. They accepted the will of God for their life. They turned away from their old way of living and believing and thinking. They started following Jesus in a new way with a new heart and a new mind. And yet I think there's still some of us, or maybe in this situation, I have a picture of Calvin and Hobbes that I think illustrates where some of us are. Top left, I feel bad that I called Susie names and hurt her feelings. I'm sorry I did that. Maybe you should apologize to her. The answer is I keep hoping there's a less obvious solution. And sometimes we do the same thing. We, we keep moping around or groping around in the wrong places. And what we're doing is we're looking for the less obvious solution. The most obvious solution that I can give you this morning is this. Receive Jesus Christ. That is the most obvious solution to your pain. That is the most obvious solution to, to what is what you're struggling with right now. That is the most obvious solution to to what ills you right now. What I'm not offering you is some easy believism because actually when you go into the word of God, you see that following Jesus is not quite as easy as what some people maybe thought it was. Matthew 16 says this, Matthew 16, verse 24. Jesus said this to his disciples. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels then he will reward each person according to what he's done. I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see this, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You see, receiving Jesus is it's kind of like the buyer beware. Know what you're getting into. This isn't just you coming forward at the altar and you just praying a prayer and then living the rest of your life with some sense of like, I'm okay with God, God's going to shine upon all my, my wishes and whims. Instead, when you, when you repent of your sin and your old way of life, you're acknowledging the fact that you're a sinner and because of you being in sin, it was impossible for you to be okay with God. And that in doing so, that knowing that your sin kept you from God and acknowledging Jesus as being the the payment, paying the penalty for your sin. So that acknowledgement and turning away from your sin and turning towards Jesus and then following Him, not perfectly, but increasingly. With patterns of growth over time in your life that in time you will become a different person because the Holy Spirit does the work inside you. But buyer beware. It's not always easy. Following Jesus is is very clear. You know what's unclear? Extended warranties. They're unclear to me. I'm pretty sure now that you can actually buy an extended warranty for your extended warranty. I'm not sure. (laughs) Google that later. Not now, later. I'm pretty sure that you can get an extended warranty for your extended warranty. Because I had some time to kill, I looked up some foolish things that you can buy an extended warranty on, and one of which was individual DVDs. A, if you're buying DVDs new, we might need to have a conversation because there are other options. That's fine, though. That's fine. I get it. I don't have a DVD player. I'm not judging you. I'm not saying I'm more modern than you because you do because you have a VHS player that goes with it. Rock what you got. That's good. (laughs) If you have a beta, some of you know what that is. We do need to talk, but I can deal with VHS and DVD. But I think sometimes what we do is when it comes to the gospel message, we have this wrong belief as to what we're getting into. And we need to... We need to continually go back and preach the gospel to ourselves to remind us that this isn't just some easy believism. It's when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, that God expects change to happen in your life. The more and more and more you yield to him, the more change you will become. Not to be perfect, but to progress in your walk with God and for you to be a different person. Again, buyer beware. Because fresh perspectives rival bad assumptions. Fresh perspectives rival bad assumptions. In the time of Christ, because of Jewish nationalism, they were led to believe, to expect that there was this political Messiah that was going to come through. And he was going to deliver them from Roman control. That was their hope and their expectation that he was going to be a warrior like David and he was going to come in and it was going to be majestic and powerful and he was just going to be able to overthrow the Romans and that he would reestablish David's kingdom. There too they believed that the entrance into the the holy city was declaring the establishment of the kingdom of God. They believed all these things and they even believe some things of future events, the events that would be spoken about in Revelation 21, verse 2. And yet they had assumption, assumptions and beliefs. But they couldn't come to terms and they could not yield to Jesus. So what happens in those moments. It does not bring me joy to tell you this, but it is true. It's true of the word of God, so I have to just be honest with you. God judges their unbelief. Verse 43 and 44. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within the walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. There's another mention of this. I'm not going to go through it, but there's another mention of this in Luke 21, 20 through 24. You can look it up later if you'd like. But again, it's it's another prophetic statement of what was going to happen in about A.D. 70. When the city of God became a refuge for sin. The city of God, that being of Jerusalem, became a refuge for sin. So in AD 66, the Jews revolted against Roman control. Three years later, the son of the emperor, he was sent to squash the rebellion, but he was unsuccessful. So then Roman soldiers attacked Jerusalem. Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They broke through the northern wall. And finally, they overtook the city and they burned it down in AD 70. It's estimated that 600,000 Jews died because of that. They had missed their opportunity to respond to Jesus, and they continued in their rebellion. Really the bottom line for the whole series it could be phrased up in saying this, the last fill in the blank on your info card Jesus may not come in the way that you expect but he comes in the way that you need he may not come in the way that you expect but he comes in the way that you need you see the Pharisees needed Jesus to challenge their unbelief The Pharisees needed Jesus to challenge their stubbornness. The Pharisees needed Jesus to challenge their selfishness. The Pharisees needed Jesus to challenge their their naive and narrow view of God's goodness. And the Pharisees needed Jesus to challenge their superficial spirituality. And guess what? We need need that challenge too. We need Jesus to challenge our pride, our selfishness, our stubbornness, our rebellion, our unbelief, our superficial spirituality, and our narrow and naive view of God's goodness. I believe God is speaking today. But what is he saying to you? Would you stand?